I was just terrified. I couldn't even yell for help. I just was so afraid. On episode one of Betrayed, we heard from journalist and author Pauline Dakin about her family's bizarre life on the run from the mafia and an encounter with her mother that seemed to offer a way out. The purpose in telling me about all of this when I was 23 was that my mother had decided to go inside, meaning she was going to go and live in the place of hope and stop running. The year is 1988, and Pauline has decided to follow her mother inside to what she's been told is a government-run secret community where they'd be protected from the mafia. I wasn't 100% convinced, but I thought, well, if it's not true, it means, you know, everything I know and understand about the world is wrong. And if it is true, maybe my life is at risk, and maybe I, I do need to behave in a way to protect my life. So I went with it. Welcome to Betrayed from Penguin Random House Canada. I'm Tina Pitaway. Today, the unsettling conclusion of Run, Hide, Repeat. To help convince Pauline of the dire threats they faced, as well as to help put her mind at ease about the secret community they wanted her to move to with them, her mother Ruth and her longtime companion Stan showed Pauline a series of letters from people who were already living inside. And these weren't just random strangers. Well, the first letters I got were from my half-brother and half-sister. Pauline's father had remarried many years earlier, and she was told that her half-siblings had been working with the mob. And so along with the letters came this revelation that they'd been arrested and that they were now inside. And they had spent some time in the prison there, but then they had, I guess, reformed. You know, they'd had terrible regret about their involvement. They'd you know, were seen as kind of victims of the whole situation because of our dad. And so then they had eventually become kind of trusted people with roles to play. My sister wrote me a letter saying, um, I now work as a nurse at Place of Hope, and my brother worked in electronics and, and so on. And so there were these letters from them and other people, my godfather, and most of them asked for forgiveness and said, I'm sorry that, you know, I was involved in some way in uh, chasing or terrorizing your, you and your brother and your mom. And um, I'm glad that I can now be honest with you and maybe we can have a real relationship. You might think Pauline would be relieved to hear there were people on the inside that she knew. But it also brought on a very creepy realization. Well, if you're in prison in this secret world, who are these people that I thought were you? because by this time, of course, I had been back out west when I was a teenager those couple of times, and my half-sister had been there to visit with her baby, and my brother was living with my dad and played golf with my half-brother. It's like, what? And the answer to that was that they, you know, they were doubles. They were body doubles. And this was, you know, a very difficult thing to swallow, that these people had been replaced by body doubles because they could 
provide intelligence. So they were like spies, essentially. I, I said, oh, they, how could that ever be? And and I was told about all these examples of people who had had body doubles that are well known about, you know, for example, Winston Churchill during the Second World War had a body double. Um, and there were other examples. And they told me about, you know, um, having a team of plastic surgeons and how they can use prosthetics and how these people would train for months to step into someone's life. It was the most insane thing, uh, but it was part of this larger story. In the months after Pauline decided to go inside with her mom and Stan, Stan headed back to the place of hope while Pauline and her mom waited on word that they could move. Stan returned occasionally for brief visits, but what had once seemed like an imminent move kept being delayed. There were complications because there were threats that uh, if we went inside, all hell would rain down on the people we left behind. And so, oh, we can't go inside yet until the security people sort out what these threats are about and where they're coming from. At some point, it appears imminent that we will be able to go inside. So we were told that we could go and visit Ted to tell him. Ted Dakin is Pauline's younger brother. And so we went to Vancouver and he came and he brought this young woman he was engaged to, and we met, and then and then she went home, and we told him what was going on. He was very upset. And I could see that physically as he was listening. It was just like throwing terrible weight on him. It felt like a terrible thing to do to him, to tell him that. You know, the, the biggest part was concern obviously for myself but but my friends my uh, wife at the time Elaine Ted Dakin lives in Edmonton now he remembers that time more than 20 years ago that he was told about the mafia threat he was warned not to tell his fiance but he felt he had to it was devastating to her because uh, who would want to be a part of that we were a pretty messed up family i guess from that perspective when you look from the outside in Going inside was never really an option that Ted considered. And though his dad was still living, neither he nor Pauline ever thought seriously about confronting him with these accusations. Partly because they weren't that close anymore, but also because they'd been warned not to. It was a struggle. You know, you, you, you would look behind your back at all times. I've got into situations. Ted remembers a time in the first year or so of his marriage. Elaine and I are driving from uh, dinner somewhere near Southwest Marine Drive in uh, Vancouver. Elaine is pregnant. Ted's behind the wheel. And uh, I look behind me and there is a car very, very close. And I uh, thought, okay, well, that's kind of strange. So I sped up a bit and the car sped up a bit. Then it started flashing its lights. And next thing you know, we're doing about 120 kilometers an hour on a what I think would be a 60 kilometer an hour zone. Both of us are, are, are frightened, of course, and, and concerned. Um, all I can think to do is, is try and, and find somewhere I can go where there's light and, and there's other people around. So I am drive into a, uh, into a gas station. Not sure really what I was thinking, but I, I, I think I thought I just need to find out what the heck is going on here. So I jump out of the car and scramble almost across the street because by this time the, the car had gone past, did not follow us into the gas station and was stuck at a red light. 
So I leaped over the hood of their car and, and started grabbing at the handle, trying to get in, screaming, I, I, I presume, who are you, what do you want? The, the windows were all tinted, so I couldn't see who was in there, but I looked around the front window to see if I can get a glance, and there's four teenagers sitting in there, and they looked more scared than I felt at that time. There was quite a crowd of cars around me that uh, probably wondered what was going on, whether it was road rage or something. It was, you know, I was disappointed in a way that I didn't find something out. It didn't, it didn't solve any, any mysteries for me at all. It's so scary. Yeah. Yeah. How did you, um, and you were experiencing similar fears, how did you two support one another? Well, we lived at opposite ends of the country. And so, you know, you could never talk about any of this by phone, right? Because you had to assume that your phone line was bugged. I went to visit him. This was after he and Elaine were married and they'd had a baby. It was really the first time we could really talk about it. Mom wasn't around and no one was around. So we, you know, we acknowledged that this whole thing was... I'd become increasingly suspicious of it and unable to sustain it as a story, and he certainly had. He had also been given a little radio. Uh, Ted being Ted, <laughs> he used it just to test it, and nothing happened. And, of course, there was a story that explained all of that, but he had stopped believing this story. And then he told me that he had gone to the RCMP in Kelowna. When I lived in Kelowna, I went to the RCMP, and sat down with uh, whoever was the, the top person in the Kelowna division and started talking to him about this and, and was telling him the stories. And I was just trying to figure out if, if this could even be remotely real in any way. And of course, I don't remember the exact conversation. I, I block a lot of these things out, but uh, I do remember him looking at me like I had three eyes and how on earth could I believe it? But there was no recommendation from that person to say, maybe you need to go get some help somewhere else. It was, it was distressing when I left there, when it was like, okay, well, they're telling me adamantly that it's not true, but yet there's a cover story for that as well, which means that nobody knows about it, but you know, it's hard to get help. It is. We became really uh, concerned for my mom. How could we sort of extricate her from all of this. You know, she believed it 100%. She'd been involved in it now for a very long time. But we felt that for some reason and in some way Stan had made this up and it was a hoax and he had kind of brainwashed her. And you t- you decide to set up a, b- a bit of a sting. What did you do? I had to know for sure. I waited until a time I knew that Stan was visiting my mom and I called her. And I said, my house has been broken into. What should I do? Now, my house had not been broken into. You know, I was making it up just to see what response I would get. And she said, oh, hold on a minute. I'll talk to our friend, meaning Stan, and I'll call you back. And so I waited for a few minutes, and then she called back. And she said, yes, he says that uh, two people were picked up outside your house. They'd broken in looking for certain things. We have them in custody, and they'd been following you. There were photographs of you in the back of the car. And in that moment, I knew it was this whole thing was a hoax. 
And that was it. It, it wasn't real, and, and I knew it for sure. What happened to you physically in that moment? Oh, I was shaking. I was, I, I just felt like everything had fallen to pieces around me. Um, and I felt sick and, yeah, it was not good. Pauline arranged to have dinner with her mom and Stan. And I said to mom, why don't we run out and pick up some dessert as a way to get her alone? And we went and, and parked by this store. And I said, I have to tell you something. And I told her what I'd done. And I said, this is, you know, this is just not real. And I don't understand why Stan would do this. And I understand that you love him and I have loved him, but there, this isn't real. And she was horrified that I would now, if I didn't believe the story, that I would now put myself in risky situations and that something terrible would happen to me. So she was so upset. We went back to the motel and I confronted Stan. And, you know, he said, as always happened when there was something that didn't add up, well, there was surely an explanation and there'd be an investigation and that couldn't be right. And, you know, you have to trust me, you know, this kind of thing. And I said, well, I don't. And it was a very strange thing because, you know, we did. He was like a dad to me. And his reaction was not anger that I had done that. His reaction was sadness. Because if I didn't believe, you know, I was now building this wall between us. And, and so his reaction was sadness, which I just found so confusing. So I cut off contact with him, but I didn't, I never cut off contact with my mother. And it became very difficult. Our relationship was you know, really damaged by this. And for months, you know, she would try to convince me it was real and I would try to convince her it wasn't real. And I, I just, you know, it was this terrible uh, clashing constantly when we were together. So, and eventually we kind of made an uneasy peace around the thing where we agreed that we wouldn't talk about that. Stan and your mom weren't living together at this point. Like Stan was still going back out west. Is that right? Yes, they never lived together. There, you know, it was, it was yet another, you know, sadness for my mother, that you know this man she had loved for so many years, they never really had a life together. And he would go back to, uh, to the inside. Is that his, he kept with that? Well, that's what he would say is that he was going back inside to the West Coast, place of hope. But in fact, uh, I later learned that he and St- Sybil had stayed together. Uh, they'd never um, separated, and he lived with her until he died. And, you know, he would tell her that he was going back east to to write or to, you know, get a cabin somewhere and be contemplative for, I, I don't know, he, he would have excuses uh, for why he would leave her for periods of time. You know, I, I just feel horrible for my mother, that she lived the better part of her life and certainly almost all her life with children, always running in fear of something happening to our family instead of just being able to enjoy her life. You know, she, she spent most of her life helping other people. And she was a wonderful lady. You know, she was a minister for a number of years 
And I'm sure she did that because she thought that was a place that she could be in a position to help the most people. But at the same time, you know, for 25, 30 years, she was running in fear and, and holding on to us, trying to make sure that nothing bad would ever happen to us. And, and it's, it's I, again, I, I wish that I could have helped somehow. I wish I had, could have figured out a way to get her out of this, but it was impossible. Years went by. Pauline found work with CBC Radio in Halifax. The uneasy truce between herself and her mother held. In 1995, Pauline became pregnant with the first of two daughters. And that was a very healing thing for our relationship because we could focus the love we felt for each other. Uh, we could mutually focus on these you know, beautiful children, and, and that was helpful. By this time, Stan wasn't visiting Ruth anymore. She still believed he was living in place of hope, and she'd get the occasional letter. Until at one point, sometime in 1996, the letter stopped. Although they rarely spoke of Stan, Ruth told Pauline that she was worried. A couple of weeks went by, and they both received letters from Sybil. Stan Sears was dead. He died of a stroke. A release from an aging and tired body, as Sybil described in her letters. For someone who had been like a father and, and had treated us so well as children, it was, uh, you know, it's horrible that I would feel very little about his death. Pauline, as well, felt very little in relation to Stan's death, other than concern for how her mother would take it. Ruth carried on as best she could, but without Stan and his connection to the weird world, her dreams, according to Pauline, and sense of direction, died along with him. And uh, my mom died in 2010. And my dad had died in uh, 2006. So they were all gone now. So several years go by, you're working at CBC as a health reporter, and you stumble across some research about, about a disorder. Tell me about that research. One day, I was reading a medical journal and came across an article on something called delusional disorder. I'd never heard of it. And as I read, oh, I couldn't believe it. This was what could explain Stan. It just fit. And so, you know, the, the uh, features of this, what was described as a, an incredibly rare disorder, and the features of it were, you know, frequently late onset, and, and that would allow Stan to have, you know, developed a life and a family and a career and so on. That made sense. Uh, no outward symptoms that these people can appear completely normal, but they have a fixed delusion and unless they choose to share it with you, you will never know that that's going on. Part of that has to do with the fact is that they don't believe they're ill. Dr. Theo Mantrek is one of the leading experts in delusional disorder. I'm on the uh, faculty of both Harvard Medical School and the University of Massachusetts Medical School. Stan was remarkable in that he never sensed himself being ill as far as we know. It just didn't cross his mind. Mm -hmm. But what did cross his mind, apparently, was this preoccupation with what he felt to be 
a clear conspiracy about which he had to muster all sorts of protections for himself and for other people. And what's interesting about delusional disorder is the heart of it is this delusion. The people who have a a delusional disorder, generally speaking, have a relatively normal mental status examination, except for the delusion. I think intelligence has a lot to say about how your delusion manifests. The more intelligent you are, the more complex and believable your delusion can be. And I always thought that Stan was brilliant. And as I read and came to know more about this, I think he was truly brilliant that he had created entire worlds in his brain, entire casts of characters um, and complex storylines. And all of this was very real to him. In general... The thing that's most striking about the case is having a delusion. And the delusion is something that defines, in many respects, most of the trouble and difficulty that occurs for that person, either for themselves or for people like Pauline, who, you know, really get caught up in the difficulties that the person essentially creates, the person who has a delusion, creates for other people. And that is one of the most striking features about this, that what is relative, can often in many respects be relatively mild. There are probably a fair number of people who have delusional disorder who function pretty well most of the time, and at only at certain points necessarily get all riled up about what they believe that is the delusion, and do something about it. You know, they're not all the time on trying to do something. And, and I think Sears probably, or Stan is probably like that. You know, he was able to function as a minister. He was well-liked. He was re- highly regarded, et cetera, et cetera. Now, he couldn't have done that if all the time he was talking about the mafia. You see what I'm saying? Right. You know, the rest of his life was very much a balance, if you will, to this preoccupation. That doesn't mean that he wasn't thinking about the mafia and so forth, but rather it just didn't take a central position in the way he was thinking about his life and what he was doing and planning and so forth all the time. And it's sort of odd when you think about it, but one would probably argue that he was probably functioning pretty well. You know, he was he was in this church, he was, he was highly regarded, and she highly regarded him. Mm-hmm. You know, her mother, of course, highly regarded him. So everyone was sort of, in a sense, hoodwinked by the whole thing, but it was clear also that there was much more going on with him. It just wasn't always apparent. Your mom, uh, did she believe this until the end? She did, yep. And um, I think, you know, at a certain point when you have lived your adult life, you know, with half your life sort of in this other pretend world. And when you have done certain things that, you know, are so extreme and moved your family around the country and, you know, severed relationships, I think it probably becomes very difficult to stop believing. I think there's so much at stake in believing. How did it shift your feelings 
towards Stan. He's he's gone at this point, so you're not really in relationship with him, uh, and he was estranged anyhow. How did it how did it change, or did it? I I never wanted to hate Stan because he'd been so good to me in so many ways, and to to he was a big support for my mom. My mom credited him with saving her life. By the time she was getting counseling. Uh, coming out of this abusive marriage, she was suicidal. And she said he saved her. So I didn't want to hate him, but I was, you know, I had. Like how, he was the betrayer of my family. And so then I learned about this condition. And I, you know, talked to the psychiatrist who wrote that medical journal article. And I talked to another psychiatrist who was an expert on the condition. and, And I came to realize that, you know, there was no malevolence in all of this, that he was sick, and he had not intended to hurt our family. In fact, he thought he was protecting our family, as my mom did. Knowing afterwards that he was the cause of this problem, uh, I personally felt uh, very angry. And, and, uh, you know, I, I wouldn't say that I wanted to run out and shoot the guy, but at the same time, he really, in some ways, destroyed our family and and, uh, caused terrible, terrible pain and agony for a lot of people. But I guess knowing that it was a mental illness allows more forgiveness, I I suppose. You know, I still have um, some complicated feelings around Stan, but I was able to kind of forgive that. And forgiving Stan and my mom... um, just felt as though I was dropping a great amount of weight off my uh, shoulders and my heart. Uh, You know, maintaining that kind of anger and resentment is a pretty heavy thing. I'm not sure I had fully forgiven her by the time she died, but I think we were in a place that was much better. But I think you continue to be in relationship with the people you love even after they're gone in some way. And so as my understanding has evolved, that has changed the way I relate to her memory, I guess. And I I feel very much like Ted. I feel incredible sorrow for her that she had such a difficult life. And I can't imagine the stress she felt you know, believing that her family was under threat and having to disappear and, and you know, try to protect us and, uh, and how that removed her from all supports except for Stan and Sybil. I have decided that I have to look for the good in, in the experiences I've had in my life. My brother and I are very close. I would not be the person I am. I would not have my children if all of this had not happened. And so I, I don't, I've spent a lot of time when I was writing my book, looking backwards and reliving this and feeling all the feelings that were there. And I think I'm done now. I think I truly am finally in a place where I can, uh, as, as a good friend of mine says, I can take the best and leave the rest. And that's what I'm that's what I'm convinced is uh, the right approach for me now. So I can feel some gratitude for a lot of what happened. Pauline Dakin is the author of Run, Hide, Repeat. Next time on Betrayed. 
I kept saying, well, why do you have to kill me? Why is it so important that you need to kill me? The shocking story of a woman who was attacked by a serial killer and survived. He um, pulled a knife out and he said, that's the last ride you're ever going to take. And he said, okay, now I have to kill you. And I said, no, really. I said, you don't have to kill me. I said, I'm not going to the cops. Elaine Anton's story is told in Mad Blood Stirring, The Inner Lives of Violent Men, from author Damon Fairless. I wanted to know what it was like inside the mind of a serial killer. Mad Blood Stirring is the culmination of years Damon spent poring over research and trying to figure out what drives male violence, both in himself. If I saw someone, a guy, uh, being an asshole, being aggressive, being a bully, I felt a switch go off and I would confront that guy. And in psychopaths. They're human beings who don't have the capacity for compassion. Once you don't have compassion, you can do terrible things. That's next time on Betrayed. For more on the books featured in this series, including Run, Hide, Repeat, and to sign up for our newsletter, visit our website at betrayedpodcast.com and follow us on Facebook and Twitter at Betrayed Podcast. Run, Hide, Repeat by Pauline Dakin can also be enjoyed as an audiobook. Find it wherever you get your audiobooks. Betrayed is a production of Penguin Random House Canada. It's written and produced by me, Tina Pitaway, with story editing and sound design by Paolo Pietropalo. Editorial oversight by Bhavna Chohan, Melanie Tutino, and Rachel Brown. Special thanks to Kristen Cochran, Robert Wheaton, Beth Lockley, Shannon Poos, Abdi Omer, Christina Chin, and Laura Chapnick.